0: I'm standing in the home of Yulia Rubinova. It's a rectangular apartment. At one end, we're sitting in the kitchen. It's a cute little kitchen. I was being polite. It was so tiny. The whole apartment was 45 square metres. That's 480 square feet. It's got wallpaper made of fabric with lots of different colours of purple and yellow and green and the wall is covered in plates from all places around the world that Yulia's family has travelled. And I can see out the window that's um, to the side of the kitchen the beautiful green park where Yulia takes her kids to play almost every day.
1: So I
2: feed birds here on the uh, window. Birds of uh, different types, uh, they are uh, very nice and unique. Uh, they came from uh, nature nearby. And we also have squirrels downside uh, uh, in the park nearby.
0: You might describe this apartment as a typical apartment that could be in any city in the world, but for Yulia, it's something else. I'm Amanda Tattersall, and this podcast is supported by Mobilization Lab. They connect social change campaigners with what works. Check them out at moblab.io. Today on Changemakers, I'm in Moscow, feeling a bit homesick. Everyone has a special affinity with their own home. But what happens when the authorities where you live think they can do whatever they like to the place that you call home, mainly because they have a history of getting their way? You fight. Let's go. There are 7,900 blocks of apartments like Yulia's in Moscow. And when I say like, I mean virtually identical, five-storey, prefabricated, white-painted, concrete rectangles.
2: In Russian it is called Khrushchevka because of time of its building under Khrushchev, our leader.
0: Like in the West, Russia had a baby boom after World War II, but Stalin didn't do anything about it. Instead, two or three generations of families found themselves crammed into small homes. It felt like that was how it was going to be for the rest of their lives. But when Stalin died, the new leader, Khrushchev, decided that he wanted to be loved, not feared. And so he built these apartment blocks for the millions of young families who'd been living with their parents and grandparents. They were a symbol of a new kind of leadership. They were not the most beautiful buildings in the world, but 1.6 million Moscovites are proud to call these brutalist structures their home. Now, the mayor of Moscow, a man named Sergey Sabayan, wants to knock them down. Ideally, all 7,900 of them. In February 2017, he announced plans to demolish 50,000 apartments, with more to come. It goes by the benign-sounding policy of renovations. And it's stirring genuine opposition in a country where the one thing the government hates more than anything is, uh, well, genuine opposition. Imagine living in one of those apartments. They look drab from the outside, but inside they're warm. Most of them are solidly built. Everyone I talked to said they couldn't really hear their neighbours through the walls. This was Khrushchev's legacy. Under his policy, 25% of Russians got their own homes. It was a mass urbanisation the likes the world had never seen before. So the idea was they were homes for young families. But imagine trying to bring up children in a 45-square-metre apartment. Where the hell do the kids play? Like everything else, Soviet planners had, well, a plan for that. Why did you want to live in this area?
1: So when
2: we we were choosing where to live, I used the map and I searched uh, it for uh, green zones because I wanted to play with my children to walk in the parks and that's why we chose this part of Moscow.
0: Parks. Lots of them. Indeed, they were called urban forests because these parks had always been there before Moscow was an established city. In true communist style, everyone's backyard had been collectivised, clumped together and shared as public space. For years, Yulia had heard about the mayor's renovation plans but hadn't thought much about it. But in 2016, she found out that the park next door, the whole reason why she was living there, was going to be turned into an apartment block. They were planning to replace the pine forest with another block of units.
2: We knew about it almost uh, by chance. Our municipal deputy was mailed to the documents uh, with uh, information about uh, the further construction.
0: So they had some documents that said it was going ahead. But when Yulia inquired about it, the authorities reassured her that nothing was happening.
1: But
2: our local authorities uh, said us that no such construction uh, would take take place. They insisted that no such construction would take place.
0: Not totally trusting the officials' reassurance, together with her local representative, Yulia made further inquiries.
2: So they said we knew nothing about it. Uh, We uh, made our research, but... uh, Nothing is clear. We don't know anything. They said it was hardly possible that such a construction would take
0: place. And yet trucks were moving in. It was clear that construction was about to start taking place. So Yulia did what any outraged local resident would do. I
2: took pictures and they sent it to the local organisation, which... Do the protection of natural res- uh, resources.
0: You contacted your local environment organization. What were they called?
2: Uh, so it is called <laughs> Mos Priroda in Russian, which means uh, Moscow's nature. And this is an environmental protection organization. And we send them photos and we apply to them when we want to protect something.
0: But bureaucracy in Moscow is slow. While they waited for the Environmental Protection Organization to stop the construction, Yulia started talking to her neighbors.
2: In October, I started uh, talking with other families here to protect the park.
0: It was at that point Yulia discovered she wasn't alone in wanting to protect the park.
1: So we live in a
2: huge city. And uh, if we don't have uh, any parks here, it would be impossible to raise children here without clean
1: air. Without any options to um, walk them in the parks. So
2: we found other activists, uh, people with many children.
0: Meanwhile, the mayor is not even acknowledging her concerns. When asked about protests against his development plans, he cites a pro-government think tank poll which says 80% of Moscovites support his plans. The mainstream media lapped it up. At the same time, everyone in power that Yulia talks to assured her nothing would happen to the park. It would be illegal to construct anything on the park. After all, the pine forest has been there for hundreds of years. It's essentially heritage-listed. Even the roads leading into the park are illegal to drive on. Weeks pass. Then one day, signs go up around the park announcing that construction will begin in just a few days. You'd been told there was no construction, then you found the
1: signs. How did you feel? I was shocked. I was I I didn't think uh, that could
2: believe that such thing is possible in Moscow, in the center of
1: Russia. Um, it was It uh, was really...
0: Uh, shocking thing. Any uncertainty was now lost. Yulia decided to mobilize. How? They set up a Facebook page of course.
2: On a group of Facebook called uh, Let's Protect Our Park, Rivapisne Park. And uh, we post uh, photos there, our letters and uh, uh, we try to attract people' attention to this group and also we um, place uh, signs uh, in the area um, so uh, to let people know what is happening. Um, and we also organised uh, two meetings to, uh,
0: and two protests. And for organising? How fast was it that other people got involved?
2: So initially when the construction started, uh, people uh, around here was shocked they, uh, and they uh, supported us and um, uh, 16,000 people signed our petition.
0: 16,000 for a local park. Yulia says that 3,000 to 4,000 of those were offline with the rest coming through their Facebook group. Why do you think so many people joined the campaign so quickly? So it's
2: really important for us. Uh, We all love this place. We have squirrels there. We can feed them in summer. We can ski there uh, in winter. And we have beach there also. It's amazing.
0: Everyone loves it. That's right. It's even got a beach in Russia. (laughs) Because Russia is known for its wonderful beaches. Unfortunately, the construction company pushed on.
1: And uh, also after
2: that, uh, some uh, people, um, all in black, appeared in the park
1: suddenly. молодых людей одетых во все чёрное и они защитников парка
2: они просто скрутили and they uh, pushed out the uh, activists who tried to protect the park and uh, It was
0: uh, unbelievable. So Yulia decided that if the authorities weren't going to stop the illegal construction, she and her neighbours needed to take the law into their own hands.
1: How did you do that? Um, So we tried to
0: block the road. Remember, this is Russia, where opponents of the government are regularly assassinated. That said, it was a local issue, hardly likely to get the notice of the Kremlin. At least, not yet. Yulia and her fellow neighbours took turns blocking the roads from the trucks that were driving to the very active construction site. Before the protests about the park, had you ever been involved in a protest or social change campaign before? Нет,
1: yeah, никогда. No. Oh no, never.
0: No <laughs> so, what did it feel like to block a road to save your park?
2: So it was really stressful. I might spend this time with my children and family, but I had to block the road. How did you do it? So it's uh, quite silent here. So at night I heard the vehicles going into the construction site once. So 3 a.m. we uh, went there with my husband.
0: Their neighbours, who also lived next to the park, joined in. The road they were blocking was through a protected area. Cars weren't even allowed to use that road, let alone trucks for a construction site.
2: So we called uh, the police and uh, we tried to stop vehicles, but against us was about uh, 20 people and uh, we uh, couldn't do anything. Uh, The the vehicles passed uh, through us.
1: So we asked the police
2: to check, so the police to check the, uh, whether the vehicles are allowed to go there, but they didn't do that.
0: Then one day, about a month after the construction begins, finally, Yulia heard back from the Environmental Protection Organization in charge of stopping illegal construction, the one they'd sent the photos to. So
2: only one month after the start of construction, a um, it um, gave them uh, the passes that they
0: are allowed to go to the construction site. The nature organization. Yeah. Oh my god! You lost your ally. Oh, they turn. They turn to the other side. It's that's a disaster. How did you feel? Uh,
2: yeah. So, actually, they were not our allies. They um, changed their, their side. We tried to apply to them, but they were, they were on the side of construction organisation.
0: That's how it rolls in the land of Putin. Still, they pressed on when it came to blocking the road. Unfortunately for Yulia, time wasn't on their side, thanks to a very Russian problem. So, so you blocked the road for how long?
2: So it was winter, so 24 for 7 was impossible. Uh, And uh, we did it uh, from time to time when they could.
0: The Russian winter. Sure, it stopped Napoleon and Hitler, but now it was stopping Yulia's protests. So instead, her group turned their efforts to navigating their way through the Russian bureaucracy to find an institution or agency that would rule the clearly illegal construction illegal. They wrote to the mayor. So we
2: wrote a replied from them that they uh, didn't see any illegal activities and that actual, actually the
0: construction is legal. This was untrue technically, but the mayor was used to doing things that were technically illegal and getting away with it. He had the support of the Kremlin and perhaps just as importantly, he was popular among Russian oligarchs. The mayor's attitude was that it was legal if he said it was legal. So what was going on here? How did the construction companies think they could just barrel in and build an apartment block over a much-loved park? Why did the mayor think he could act with impunity? And what do you do when you're fighting an opponent who doesn't stick to the rules? Eleanor Rustakova is a local activist who ran in the 2012 regional elections.
2: So it's long ago, in 1990s, uh, probably, when uh, local authorities first uh, started to uh, consider these green areas as their own property.
0: Eleanor says the problem dates back to the 1990s. Before the collapse of communism, the parks were controlled by the Soviet authorities. They were embedded in the idea of collective ownership. The idea that they could be privatised was an anathema to the whole system. But then, when the Iron Curtain came down, the question of who even owned these spaces, who was in charge of the parks, became a genuine puzzle. So, even though there was never any formal decision to make them the property of the city, over the years, that's what happened. But because of this lack of clarity, authorities have become emboldened over the years to do as they wish without reference to the law. And from one perspective, you can understand why. Power abhors a vacuum. As the Soviet state collapsed, it was the people who simply took charge and started running the economy, who were the ones who set the rules. And as they did, the ability of the law to rein them in got weaker and weaker.
3: Uh,
2: So this situation is definitely getting worse. Um, but um, um, this is because of uh, uh, the thing that, uh, uh, in the past, uh, it was enough to um, present uh, a law to, to state that uh, it is illegal to construct something. And then the construction stopped. But now uh, the government uses force and uh, um, saying that it is illegal is not enough to stop it.
0: So what do you do when the opponent who doesn't obey the rules is your government? While the construction companies were private, the mayor's construction boom was very much a government thing, complete with a tick of approval from the Kremlin.
2: Uh, uh, Corruption is involved, of course. Uh, Even when uh, people go to street protests and say that... uh, what you are doing is illegal, it uh, doesn't work because police don't help and uh, government do not respond to it.
0: Yaroslav Nikintin also lived near Yulia's park and decided to get involved in the fight with Yulia. But Yaroslav wasn't just any resident. He was an experienced social activist. Yaroslav decided to get involved personally to help save the park, especially since the reason for the construction seemed so openly craven to him.
4: Because the land uh, down parks, it's uh, it's very expensive and they just want to construct and they don't care about the future or they just don't associate their future with this country and with this city. They just want to make uh, quick money here.
0: In other words, the people who have the power don't have to live with the consequences of their actions. And they were there to make a buck, just like any good oligarch.
4: Because we have fewer and fewer gr- green... Areas in Moscow and uh, the center of Moscow is just uh, some just a concrete place, and uh, there are very few trees there. And uh, in the center, it's not only about air, but there are many psychological diseases in the center of Moscow because of lack of trees, because of a huge number of automobiles, and uh, this is awful.
0: So, how do they do it? How do they get away with it? For a start, they keep it out of the press.
4: For example, in the northwest of Moscow, there were absolutely no publications about our fight to save Živopisne Park because it's so censored in official media.
0: That's why the Facebook group became so important. So, how do people find out if their park or their green space is under threat?
4: These are mostly local activists who just uh, watch Facebook and uh, see news, get news from there.
0: Of course, it's not just the media. The political leadership also play a role. There again, Yaroslav says there's a problem. Why do you think the mayor didn't care?
4: He's pretty confident. If he had no administrative resource, if if we had fair elections, I think he would care. But he just, he even said nothing. We have had no reaction from him. There is just censorship on his uh, media resources
0: and all that. So they just ignore you. Yaroslav says the only thing standing between the mayor and the construction were the courts. There again was a problem.
4: We have quite corrupt courts who are always on the side of power. Not always, but in most cases. And uh, there are practically no other means to change anything. So we have only public pressure.
0: Yaroslav and Yulia had generated public pressure and eventually one institution, an environmental court, ruled in their favour. And it
1: uh, confirmed that the
2: uh, area... Um, was uh, cemented illegally, that the vehicles uh, had their passes illegally and that the construction is illegal too.
0: It was a victory of sorts, but it was too little too late. The mayor and his construction companies now knew they couldn't just barrel into parks with impunity. Up until this point, they'd relied on a compliant media that had kept the project out of the spotlight. But now, Yulia was shining a spotlight on it and it became too risky. The developers and the mayor were no longer able to act unilaterally. They had to take into account the actions of the locals. The reaction from the government was swift. In late 2016, the mayor announced a new, breathtakingly audacious approach to stamp out the protests.
4: For example, in the end of 2016, Moscow city Duma, like uh, parliament, they prohibited municipal deputies to uh, gather with their voters. It, That's
0: unbelievable.
4: Yes, it, it was pretty terrible. And I think we should uh, organise, unite and uh, uh, fight for our rights and fight for local self-governments.
0: That's right. Local representatives were banned from turning up to protests. It's clear that somebody had a deep incentive to keep the construction boom on track. But Yaroslav says that corruption is not about under-the-table payments in brown paper bags. In Putin's Russia, it runs far deeper than that.
4: I would say that construction companies are government. There is no bribery, they just... Uh, you make a okay. yeah. So they initially make uh, such bids that uh, their own uh, companies, I mean connected companies, uh, they will give the, uh, they will receive this. All rich people in Russia, they are all uh, pretty connected to government. That's why it's one command of oligarchs who rule the country and Moscow as well.
0: So the fact that Yulia and Yaroslav managed to sort of save their park was a remarkable victory. Dogged persistence by the protesters changed the political calculations about whether stealing public parkland was worth it. It was shining too much of a light on a questionable activity. Moscow officials and their crony construction companies had to take the annoying protesters into account. Back in a moment. This podcast is supported by the Fred Hollows Foundation. Four out of five people who are blind don't need to be. The Fred Hollows Foundation knows how to fix the problem and they can restore sight for as little as $25 in some countries. Over the past two decades, Fred Hollows has restored the sight of more than two million people. <coughs>
5: There was one time when I operated on one man, he was blind for so many years and after the operation I followed him back to his home,
6: but he wouldn't go into his house immediately. He just went around
0: touching everything.
6: He touched the cow, he touched the bricks and
0: everything, because all he could do before was touch,
5: but now he wanted to touch and see at the same time.
0: Donate today at hollows.org. OK, so remarkably, Yulia and Yaroslav had stood up to oligarchs and actually saved parts of their park. But now they'd realised that their fight wasn't just about one park. It was a systemic problem that had been going on for years. But what exactly was going on? That's when they met Sergi Menjuritsky. Sergi had spent the last seven years trying to answer the same question.
3: After
5: 2009, I supported Mr Putin and the current government, absolutely. I was pro-Putin. I grew up in a family full of people from army and military-oriented people. My brother is now in the army, and all my predecessors were there in the Soviet times and under the Russian Tsars and all this.
0: But for Sergi, everything changed in 2009.
5: No. At that time, I we went to the Russian coast of the Black Sea, near Gelendzhik, one of the more favourite places. Gelenzyk is a unique place because there are forests of pines there. This is a special type of pine that covers only 1,200 hectares all over the world. It's really unique.
0: It had special significance for Sergi.
3: Very
5: beautiful pine pine.
3: For me, from my childhood,
5: this place was like a heaven on earth because I enjoyed walking along the sea near this pine forest. And this is a really beautiful place. I loved it so much.
0: But in 2009, when Sergi went back there for a holiday...
5: I went there, and I saw a fence, and I saw no end of this fence. So it was like a bad dream, because I went to my favourite forest, but I saw a fence and guards with dogs walking nearby, and it was a fence between the sea line and the forest.
0: The coastline, the beach, and the forest had all been privatised. Enraged, Sergi found a gap in the fence and went through.
3: I saw
5: thousands of unique pines destroyed. I saw the area prepared for construction, for construction of a palace.
0: A distillery to produce wine and alcohol had also been built. The forest and the construction site were on protected land. Sergey wrote to the government and they confirmed that the land was essentially like a national park, something for everyone to enjoy. And yet there were fences and guard dogs.
5: So I consider this a crime, a crime not only against ecology, but against all people and all humankind. I consider it in this way.
0: Then the following winter all was revealed. Unbeknownst to the Russian president, Dmitry Medvedev, a deal had been secretly struck between Russian businessman Sergi Klasnikov and the then Prime Minister.
3: Vladimir Putin.
0: Vladimir Putin. It was a done deal. Regardless of whether it was legal, with Putin's backing, there was nothing anyone could do.
3: <音楽><音楽><音楽><音楽>
5: So Alec Berov, who is head of the local organisation, he arranged a fence there of four metres high. He puts guards near the fence, so now it's like his own property, his home. His family spend time there. He puts their statues and everything. And all this, well, we don't have a lot of beaches here. So Russia is quite a cold country. And here are coastlines and beaches where you can spend time in summer. It's a unique resource. And it has always been protected by the government. So what happened now with the privatisation of the past unique natural reserves, it has no parallels in the history of Russia. It's unbelievable.
0: To Sergey, this raised fundamental questions.
5: So after my research I started thinking, what is our government and how could I communicate with it? So the government should help people solve issues, but this, this situation was the opposite, like the government created the issues.
0: For Sergi, all roads led to the people behind the scheme, which included some familiar faces.
5: Everyone knows the current mayor of Moscow, Sabayan, and Alec Berov, who's head of Lukoil Corporation, are friends. Some time ago, Sobyanin was mayor of Kogodlim. Its region was central for oil business. So it is the same scenario each and every time. If you are in government or a friend of government, You can go illegal.
0: So Sabayan came to power as mayor of Moscow. He had a lot of business links to an oil-rich region. But then in 2012, the US passed the Magnitsky Act. Yep, you might have heard of it. The law that sanctioned Russian oligarchs and drove Putin to support Trump in the 2016 election. Before the Magnitsky Act... Russia's gas and oil magnates would make their fortunes and then move their families and their fortunes to London or Monaco or Malta.
2: So such uh, representatives of the government uh, get their resources and then move to foreign democratic well, countries. And they had no obstacles uh, to do it.
0: But after the Magnitsky Act, corrupt oligarchs, Putin's support base, had nowhere to go and nowhere offshore to put their money. Western banks were forbidden from touching it. It was a real problem for them and a real headache for Putin. Suddenly, the whole reason the oligarchs supported him had disappeared. Subayin's plans for Moscow seemed like the perfect business opportunity and a perfect way for the Kremlin to keep their favoured oligarchs with plenty of profit-making ventures on their hands. It was domestic... It was funded by the government, which was a fairly limitless resource of money. And best of all, it was being run by their old mate, Moscow mayor, Sergi
3: Sabayan.
5: So construction in Moscow it's like new oil, because you cannot get so much money from anything else.
3: And
5: besides, these businessmen who are involved in construction, they are linked to the government. So in it's, it's a means of... If you want to understand the aim of someone, you need to understand the means.
0: In other words, if the government had truly wanted to do something about improving housing for 1.6 million people, they would have actually talked to the residents about what they wanted. Instead, they brought in construction companies and gave them carte blanche. It suggested that serving the interests of the construction oligarchs was the true aim of the policy. So in stopping construction on their park, Yulia and Yaroslav had found themselves taking on powerful forces. They were taking on the entire Russian establishment. This wasn't just about a park. This was about the future of the city and who got to decide what it looked like, the residents or the billionaires. To win, it seemed obvious that they needed to broaden their front. They'd heard about other protests in other parts of Moscow. Someone had even set up a Facebook page to keep track of it all, but each group was isolated. Each group was fighting the same fight against the same opponent, but not coordinating amongst each other. Vasily Yablokov was the coordinator of the urban projects at Greenpeace Russia and also, conveniently, the head of research. Yaroslav had a chat to Vasily about the problem. The thing is, this was not usually the sort of battle that Greenpeace would get involved in.
6: It's very local and very small. Uh, and uh, Greenpeace doesn't have a position, strong position uh, about um, local problems.
0: Usually Greenpeace works on big international problems. But Vasily had a very pragmatic approach. Many of Greenpeace's potential volunteers were affected by the mayor's plan.
6: Our people who can be our potential supporters live in the cities, and we should work with their local reality because we, we need the people, because we're people power organisation.
0: Vasily also had skin in the game. The government wanted to build a freeway through his local park showing how politicising these battles could be. He decided to tear up the Greenpeace rulebook. The other side weren't playing by the rulebook anyway. Now
6: it's our position that we Greenpeace can't work with all local problems and we should raise activism in cities.
0: They decided they needed to form a network of all the small protest groups. But before they could do that, they needed to get a handle on what the hell was going on, which projects were legal, Under Moscow's planning laws, you can't just build an apartment block without also building the necessary schools, hospitals, shops and roads. But this was something that the mayor had completely neglected.
6: They uh, found a lot of illegal points of this
0: project. Yulia Galimania was a well-known local activist in a different part of Moscow.
2: So in uh, March 2016, Greenpeace, together with human rights institution, um, uh, organized uh, a research into the problem and created a report on it. Um, so at that time and before, the problem was understood. It's a Moscow
0: problem, whole oh, Moscow problem. As part of the research, they spoke to the designers and the lawyers and suggested changes to the mayor's plans. But nothing happened. Vasily says that's because in the political theatre, the technocrats working on the plan were guileless to the broader political context.
6: These people have a role of stupid uh, people uh, where don't understand anything.
0: Sergei Mendritsky helped out, running a website called Open Coast. Initially, it was just to monitor the illegal sales of coastal property. But has since blossomed into a registry of all the illegal sales of land.
3: It's
5: like a register on my website.
3: It's like
5: a map of so-called stolen coastlines of Russia. And any citizen of Russia can go to my website and put a point on the map if he or she thinks this part of the coastline is stolen.
0: Does it include any um, sites or sales inside of Moscow? Um,
5: yeah, it includes Moscow, and there are a lot of illegal activities which is pointed there, which took place previous. Yeah, I mentioned some examples.
0: Is this, is this one way that many uh, Moscovites can find out about illegal
3: sales? Yeah.
5: I have a lot of other helpful resources on my site. Not only the map itself, but also guidelines and instructions on how to act when you see a fence on coastline. So, first, people who see, they are shocked, they are angry. But if they go to my website, they can see how they should act.
0: So, in my country, the government provides the information that you provide. Why doesn't the government provide this information?
3: the fact that
5: government do not provide such information proves that the government is corrupted and works for its own interest not for the interest supporting their people. So the head of the Land Titles Office does not do such a register of occupied coastlines. They should do it, but they don't.
0: In effect, they were answering the problem that lay at the heart of their strategic dilemma. If the government wasn't going to behave like a government and follow the rules, the protesters would start writing their own rules. They would keep track of the records, They would be the reliable source of legitimate information. They were filling the vacuum of legitimate government.
3: So
5: people are far away from all the mechanisms that work for decision-making, and it is hard to fight against it. So actually, Putin's system is called the system of decorative democracy.
0: The protesters' role was to bring decision-making within the reach of those affected the residents of Moscow. Thanks to the report and several local green space victories, for the first time, the mainstream media were paying more attention. It was clear these people were not shabby radicals, but a reliable source of information in the face of a slippery administration.
6: It was very cool because uh, we uh, use media like a pressure for government.
0: And thanks to Vasily's network coordinating local groups, the protests started getting bigger. Suddenly, it was part of the national politics in Russia, thanks to Greenpeace executive director Sergey Tablonka
6: Every year, Putin has a meeting with members of Human Rights Council uh, and Sergei, who is a member of this uh, council, Directly to Putin about the situation with uh, Park Square. Uh, it was uh, strange because it's not like a human right problem, it's an environmental problem. But it was uh, like a quintessence of this meeting with Putin, and Putin was like uh, surprised about this situation why Moscow government cutting the forest for constructing roads and he uh, said, okay, I asked uh, mayor of Moscow about his situation.
0: Putin was shocked, but surprise, surprise, nothing changed. The mayor kept going, demolishing parks all around Moscow, all but confirming which side Putin was on. Then in February, 2017, just as winter was at its most bitter, the mayor announced his boldest plan yet. 50,000 apartments would be razed to the ground as phase one of a massive so-called renovation. That's 7,900 apartment blocks. Ironically, in a way, this was exactly the sort of overreach that the protesters needed. Now, it wasn't just your park that was being threatened with illegal demolition. It was your home. The pace of organising picked up speed. Step one, petitions. Julia Galamania, who had previously run for office, knew how to organize.
2: So uh, there are about uh, 30 um, houses, uh, flats, block of flats in uh, the district where I live. And uh, in a week, we gathered about uh, about 1,000 signatures.
0: But they didn't just stop at petitions.
2: So, after that, when we get connected to people, we found one or two activists in each house uh, in our district.
0: They were organising at a hyper-local level, but they couldn't just play locally on an issue that was affecting the whole city. They had to go broad as well. Uh,
2: So, basically, we used internet.
0: Facebook, yet again. Several Facebook pages were set up. The largest was... (laughs)
2: Moscovites against the destruction of buildings.
3: Uh, So this uh, group
2: probably has about
0: 30,000 followers, but it's not the only one group. To build on the momentum, they decided to hold a meeting in Pushkin Square. The idea was to show that they were not just a fringe group, but a major political force. Through the coordination of all the local protest groups, on the 14th of May... Sixty thousand people across Russia protested, the largest protest in five years. In the footage, heavily armed anti-riot police used batons to pull down protest placards attached to the statue in the square.
2: And later, Alexei Navalny...
0: That's basically Russia's de facto opposition leader. ...go to near this scene uh, of
2: uh, this meeting and uh, he started um, to um, have some uh, quarrels with police. Police tried to arrest him.
0: Remarkably and rapidly, the rally had an effect. The protest march was in mid-May. By the end of the month, the mayor had massively scaled back his ambitions, halving the number of apartment blocks scheduled for demolition. And what kind of message do you think the rally sent to the mayor about um, renovations and about the changes to green spaces.
1: So it's really
2: hard. But uh, anyway, it uh, was worth it, because uh, after our protests, we had some changes uh, and amendments to the law. And if before that uh, you had only 60 days to relocate if your home is to be renovated, now you have 90 days. and.
0: It's something. It's something because it allows protesters extra time to organise to stop demolitions. You see, if you can get 70% of your building to oppose the demolition, you can now veto it. This change in the law gave people like Yulia the space she needed to stop the demolition of her apartment block. Beyond that, it shows that the protesters had achieved some recognition in one of the hardest sites for protest in the world. The rally made the mayor realise that he must take the people into account. Not only that, but one poll conducted after the protest said 58% of Moscovites supported the protest, which greatly undermined the mayor's claim that 80% of people supported demolitions. The fight is far from over. Some distant observers see echoes of the 2012 protest movement in this latest surge. Back then, 120,000 filed onto the streets of Moscow in the wake of a national election that was decorative democracy at its finest. But there are key differences to this protest movement. For a start, it's grounded by very specific local concerns. Many of those involved are not there out of some political ambition, but simply out of a desire to protect their homes and whose eyes have now been opened to the flagrant corruption of the system. How has this campaign, all this work, changed how you think about the government?
2: So, my opinion about government turned upside down. Uh, And I understood that uh, all power is uh, in the hands of rich people and uh, only they can decide what to do next in our country.
0: So what would you do if you were them? Here, the protesters themselves are divided. Some, like Yulia Rubanova, decided that the only way to force accountability on the Moscow Duma was to join it. She decided to run in the local elections. After all, as Yaroslav points out, most of the local campaigns still lose to those in power. Perhaps they'll have more impact if they have someone representing them from within.
4: Most of campaigns are being lost. But if we lose, we can... uh win in elections, for example. It it could be a good outcome from this.
0: And Yulia Galamania believes that only by participating can democracy become less rigged.
1: So uh,
2: people, uh, in the past, people considered all elections in the government as rigged elections, rigged elections, and uh, so they didn't participate, participate in it at all. So the world will not change uh, its by itself, you need to do something to make change to the world.
0: Others like Sergi and Vasily believe that acting outside the political system will bear more fruit. Sergi's website will continue to be the definitive register of illegal land sales in Moscow. And Vasily's coordination of local groups will ensure that protesters can bring citywide scale to local concerns. In sticking with his approach of simply doing the government's work for it, Sergi is expanding the concept of local boards, which are like standing committees that keep pressure on the local deputies and provide them with truthful information.
5: So when we create a normal independent local board, we can get this brain and, or these mechanisms of communication with the whole living organism. And in that case, the government, at the city level, will get proper information about what is going on in the districts, because now they have signals only from the high levels of power
0: Every state has a power dynamic where the people can play a role, even in Russia, where the government has a track record of literally killing its opponents. This social movement was particularly effective because it was based on the day-to-day experience of Moscovites. It was first based on their love of their treasured green spaces and their attachment to their homes. It was grounded in place, in the spaces that people live in every day. It meant that everyday people... People who had never been involved in political life felt comfortable stepping into political action. And the process of being political, of contesting power, taught them so much about how the system worked. They learned the force they were up against when their environmental organisation sided with the construction company. They were taught about real politics when the apartment block was built, despite it being illegal. These moments provided those involved with lessons about how the Russian state worked. Then the state overreached with its decision to demolish tens of thousands of homes. This then caused an equal and opposite reaction by the people that forced this decorative democracy to compromise. These changemakers haven't won in Moscow, but they have not lost either. The most important lesson they have gained is that they have learnt how to fight. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. It's produced by Carolyn Pegram and Catherine Franey. Written by Charles Firth. Our researchers are Tessa Sparks, Iona Rennie and Amy Farrell. Sound editing by Molika Bin and Jules Wookera. Our audio producers are Uncanny Valley. Our theme music is by Justin Shave. Our launch partner is Mobilisation Lab. They are a global learning and collaboration network powering the future of social change campaigns. Our sponsoring organisations are Australia for UNHCR, getup.org.au, the Fred Hollows Foundation, Sydney Democracy Network, and the Organising Cities Project, funded by the Halloran Trust, based at the University of Sydney. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast, and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories.